At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, friends, this morning we are going to be opening God's Word again, and we're going to be continuing a series we began a couple of weeks ago um, called The New Normal. And this series is anchored in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 when we see in those verses the new that Jesus has normalized. In other words, that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, He came not to just add a little bit of addition to the religion that existed, but He came to form a new covenant, a new way by which you and I would relate to God, which is the Jesus way, that we would connect to God through Him. And so in this series, we have been looking at Galatians 1 and 2 to see the new that Jesus has normalized. And this morning, we're going to continue that study by looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, as we see the transformation that happens in the Apostle Paul's life. But before we get to those verses today, I want to just have all of us think for a moment about big changes that we have seen. Massive transformations that have occurred. And when I say that, I want your mind not to float to structural changes or organizational changes or redecoration of your home kind of changes, but instead I want you to think of personal transformations, lives that have completely flipped around. How big of transformations do I want you to be thinking about? Changes this big. Change as big as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton opening a pizza place in New York together called Two Old Friends, that big. How, how big do I want this change to be? You'd be thinking about in this. I'm talking about Kevin Durant as the new mayor of Oklahoma City. That that kind of that kind of big. How, how big a change? Barry Switzer as the athletic director at the University of Texas. That big. What is the biggest transformation? The biggest change that you have seen? Change so big that there is no explanation for it other than an act of God. What's the biggest that you've seen? It could be a transformation that has occurred in your own life and the life of someone in your family. It could be a transformation that you read about in an article in a magazine or on the internet. What is the biggest transformation that you've seen? Well, friends, this morning we're going to talk about a transformation that is even bigger than whatever you just thought of. A transformation so large that it is kind of the gold standard of, of revolution and change in individuals' lives. It's a transformation that happened in the life of a man named Saul who lived in a town called Tarsus, where Saul of Tarsus went from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel, from an enemy of Jesus to the one that would write half of the New Testament. That kind of transformation is epic. And when we pick up our New Testaments and we read it, often we forget that half of it came from the pen of one who had that kind of about face in his life. And through that change, God gave a powerful argument to help us understand the divine origin and power of the gospel that gives hope and grace and life to you and to me. Of this transformation in Paul's life, 
Warren Wiersbe helps us by saying this. He says, Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the church, became Paul the apostle, the preacher of the gospel. This change was not gradual. It happened suddenly and without warning. Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians. A few days later, he was in Damascus preaching to the Jews that the Christians were right. How could the Judaizers explain this sudden transformation? The answer, friends, is they could not. It is not something that was explainable by human means. It's something that required divine work, intervention of God. And through that transformation and through the origin of that message, we find there is power and hope and life in the new that Paul talked about in the gospel that he preached. And so we're going to look at that today as we look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. In these verses, Paul is beginning to share his personal life story, the story of his transformation as an apologetic for the power of the gospel. I want to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, I want to go back and make three observations from these verses today. Paul writes and says this, says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see three things about the transformation in Paul's life and the power that it reveals to us about the gospel that he preached. Well, what are those three things? The first one we see is this. The gospel is God's idea. The gospel is God's idea. When Paul writes in this section, he wants us to be very clear that the new that he was proclaiming, that Jesus had brought into effect, was not something that he had come up with. It wasn't something that he had originated or invented. It was nothing that the apostles in Jerusalem had come up with. And they had not collaborated to make up a story, to create a religion. But Paul wants all of us to know that the gospel was God's idea. Now, we see this come clear as we look at these first few verses of this passage. But it's helpful for us to also remember the context. So what is the context of this? Well, we've seen that over the first two weeks of this series. As Paul began this letter to the Galatians, he reminded them that he was an apostle, 
but he was not an apostle by self-proclamation. And he wasn't an apostle because a group of other apostles voted him into the club. But he was an apostle by commission from Jesus himself. So Paul's authority in his mission was tied to Jesus' direction. We saw that in Galatians 1.1. But we also saw that Paul was very particular, not just about his apostleship, but also about the message that he proclaimed. And that message was the gospel that he described for us in verses 3 and 4. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ giving himself for our sins so that we might be forgiven in order that we might be delivered from this present evil age. That was the one message of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. And again, that message did not come from Paul, and it did not come from the apostles, but it came ultimately from Jesus himself, Paul and the rest of the apostles, merely echoing to the world what Jesus had told and taught to them. It was God's idea from the beginning. Because of that, we saw last week, Paul said, anyone who changes that message should have their voice silenced inside the church. That message should be set aside for judgment because the gospel message, because it came from Jesus, should not be changed or adulterated in any way. So what we see inside of Galatians 1 up to this point was that Paul was very clear that his apostleship was God's idea. He was set aside for a task. But not only was his apostleship God's idea, But in verses 11 and 12, the verses I just read, Paul also wants us to remember that the message that he proclaimed was also God's idea. Now, where did that come about? Well, we see Paul describe the veracity of that statement in the verses that we opened our service with. The first of those in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when he makes that statement, we've talked about this already in the series. What is the easy challenge to that statement? What's the the easy question where someone could raise their hand and say, hey, wait a second, Paul, I've, I've got a question about what you just said. What's the problem with it? The problem is the chronology of it, right? Jesus was no longer walking the face of the earth. The entire timeline of Paul's conversion and his transformation was all after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And so the question could rightly be asked of Paul, Paul, how is it that you could say that this message that you are proclaiming now was not something that you invented or not something that was taught to you by the apostles? How can you say that you got this directly from Jesus himself? Well, he gives us a a timeline that helps us understand how that came about in the verses that follow. What What do we see? Well, it's helpful for us to put this on a timeline. Not referenced inside of this, but let's go back and point the first point on our timeline being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection all preceded this. Jesus is now ascended on high in heaven before the events take place that Paul is getting ready to describe. But what we see Paul talk about next is his conversion. And we see this in verses 13 through 16. Now, we're going to go more in depth on the story of Paul's conversion in just a few moments in this message. But 
Here, it's important for us just to remember the timeline of when that occurred. So Jesus ascended into heaven. Paul is converted a few months later, walking along the Damascus Road. That event is not only referenced by Paul in Galatians 1, 13 through 16, but it's also told in more detail in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And so Paul is converted in a dramatic way. The one who is persecuting the church becomes the one who is preaching the gospel and defending the claims of Christ. Well, what happened next after Paul's conversion? Well, the next thing that Paul said happened was that he went to Arabia. We see this in the first part of verse 17, where where he says that he did not go to Jerusalem to consult with anyone, but instead he went into Arabia. Now, what was Paul's point as he talks about this? As a matter of fact, Paul's excursion into Arabia is something that is not referenced inside of the book of Acts in the historical account in Acts chapter 9. It's not mentioned there. So why does Paul mention it here? And keep in mind, it's not an insignificant amount of time that Paul spent in Arabia. Paul would spend about three years in Arabia after he first came to faith in Christ. So the question is, what was Paul doing in Arabia, and why did he go there? Well, it seems as if he went there because God directed him to go there. But why would God direct Paul to go into Arabia? Why not tell Paul, after his conversion, I want you to go down to Jerusalem, and I want you to find Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples, and I want you to enroll in their new believer course. I want you to to go and sit under their teaching and hear the stories that they tell, because they're going to catch you up to speed because we've got a mission that we need to do. Why is it that God directs Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but to go into Arabia instead? Where was Arabia? Arabia was the area just east of Damascus where Paul's conversion took place. Why go into the wilderness? Well, we don't really know exactly, but I have a theory about this. And that theory is this. How long did Jesus spend with the 12 apostles? How many years? Masks, I can't see your face. Hold up a finger. Those of you at home, hold up. How many, how many years? Three. There's a hint. I'm, I'm giving you the hint, right? Three years, right? So for three years, Jesus poured into the disciples. They, they saw his work in ministry. They heard him teach. They, they heard him explain the Old Testament so that they would understand the connection between the two, so that they would understand and recognize the new that Jesus had brought about. Jesus spent three years with them. That becomes the basis, the foundation of the authority they have as they proclaim the message that Jesus had proclaimed. Paul comes to faith. He goes into Arabia for how long? Three years. What was he doing for those three years? Well, for those three years... He is receiving a revelation from Jesus Christ. Exactly how did that revelation come? We don't know. I don't think that Jesus appeared to him the way that he appeared on the Damascus Road again, or I think that would have probably been described in other passages in more detail. But I think what happened during that three years was, given the message that he had been given by Christ, Paul goes into Arabia and he studies the Old Testament Scriptures. And empowered by the Spirit of God, he begins to see and understand 
who Jesus was, what he had come to accomplish. The depths of Paul's theology were formed in his seminary time in Arabia with the Scripture and the Spirit, forming this beautiful articulation of the gospel that would become for us things like the book of Romans, was formed and fashioned in this time, in this era of his life. Now, what's fascinating about this, friends, is that the message that the Lord impressed upon Paul in this time in Arabia was not a different message, but was the same message that Jesus had impressed upon the apostles during his ministry in Israel. So Paul goes into the land of the Gentiles, and God impresses upon him a message. Jesus spends time in Israel with the disciples and impresses upon them a message. And when they compare notes, guess what? It's the same message because it came from the same source. It's an evidence, a reminder, a corroborating proof that the gospel was God's idea. Well, after he spends his three years in Arabia, what does Paul do next? Well, he goes back to Damascus, goes back to his old stomping grounds, and he talks about that in the second part of verse 17 of Galatians 1. He, he went back to the, this, this town and Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 25, it talks about Paul going back to Damascus, preaching the gospel. People get so upset with him, they wanted to kill him. When they wanted to kill Paul, uh, it got so intense that they had to lower him in a basket over the city wall so that he might escape. After he left Damascus in that time of ministry, then finally he goes to Jerusalem. But he tells us in verses 18 to 20, he didn't go to Jerusalem in order to enroll in that new believer course taught by the disciples. He went there instead just to have a personal introduction to Peter and to James, the Lord's brother, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. He went there just to make a personal acquaintance, only 15 days. Again, why does Paul go out of the way to to talk about these details? He wants us to know that the message of the gospel that he was sharing was not a hand-me-down from someone else, but it was something that the Lord had confirmed to him. Now, now friends, you and I, the gospel message that we have learned, we have learned as a hand-me-down from the apostles, from Paul and from the twelve. No, no mistaking that. We've seen it in the Scriptures. We've embraced it as we've seen it. But it was important at this initial stage, for there to be an independent strain to be able to affirm what God was doing new in Christ. He affirmed it through the apostles. He affirmed it through the apostle Paul. The time in Jerusalem was merely a time of personal introduction. After that, the people of Jerusalem get upset with Paul. They want to kill him. What can we say? Paul had a way with people. He takes off. He gets to Caesarea. They smuggle him out of the country. He goes all the way into Syria and ultimately into the region of Cilicia, which was the region where there's a particular city called Tarsus, and that was Paul's hometown, and he ends up in that spot. He ends up spending about seven years of his life back in Tarsus, awaiting whatever God had for him next. So from the moment of Paul's conversion all the way through his time in Cilicia, back in Tarsus, was a period of about 10 years. And in that 10 years, there is not a lot of collaboration between Paul and Peter and the rest of the disciples. But the message they were proclaiming was the same 
because it came from the same source. It came from God. Friends, the, the gospel is God's idea. This ought to give us incredible confidence because we do not relate to God on the basis of a religion that is man-made. It's not just one guy's best idea. It's not even just one group of people's best idea. They didn't have a convention and have a vote and come up with the constitution of Christianity. That's not the way it worked. This is unidirectional stuff. God loves us. God wanted to spend an eternity with us. So God had an idea for how that could happen. And that message, and that way, and that new was through Christ and was communicated to you and I. So we can have a confidence when we look at the Scripture, when we see the new that is here, we are not leveraging our way before God. But we are finding out God's plan so that we might connect with Him. Amen. And praise God. Now, before we move on, I want to make just one quick side comment. And that has to do with this timeline. And I make this comment because somebody here this morning needs to hear this point. Upon Paul's conversion, he promptly spends 10 years in preparation for everything that we know about Paul, right? He spends 10 years in preparation. Apparently, God was not in a hurry with Paul. There was an urgent message. There was an urgent need. But Paul's participation in it happened on God's timeline. God did not wait to begin working in Paul all the way until this point. God was preparing Paul through all of it. But the things that we know Paul for, the missionary, the pastor, the the traveling evangelist, the writer of letters of the New Testament, all of that was longer into his life. Ten years after his conversion, that began. And that's ought to be an encouragement to us because I look around the room and there are many of you right now who are in a period of waiting. You're fired up, you're excited, there's a direction you want to go, there's something you think God wants to do in you, through you, whatever, and it's just not happening fast enough. I remember when I came to faith and I came to college and I learned of the Great Commission and I got fired up about all the the opportunity that was out there. And I remember thinking, I don't have time for training. I don't have time to wait. I need to get involved immediately. And by God's grace, I was able to get involved immediately. Paul was involved immediately. But for much of what the Lord had for me in my life, there was also preparation while I was waiting. My Arabian years in Dallas and seminary come to mind. My, my years at Wildwood and early time of ministry are reminders to me of experiences that Paul might have had in Tarsus awaiting opportunities that he would have in the future. And the same is true for you. Your Arabia might not be your years in seminary. It might be something that you're going through right now. But make no mistake, friends, God is not wasting this time in your life. Our time just doesn't line up with his sometimes. He's preparing us for things that he has in our future. Because the proclamation of the gospel, it's not our idea. It's not even our message. It's his idea, and it's his message. God is working in you right now to prepare you for whatever he has next. The first thing we see in these verses is that the gospel is God's idea. There's a second thing that I think we need to see in these verses. It's not just that the gospel is God's idea, 
but also that the gospel is God's work. It is actually His work. The gospel is not about us working our way to God. The the gospel is about God who made a way for us. And this comes so clear as Paul tells his personal story. Paul's personal story is not one of how he made incremental improvements to his life until eventually he was accepted into the gospel club. But it's a story of a life that was hell-bent on killing the movement that Jesus had begun. But God in His grace saved him in a moment. It's a story of God's work, not Paul's. You and I need to remember that and never, ever forget it. The gospel is God's work. Paul tells his story often. We should tell our stories often. Paul tells his story in Acts 22 and Acts 26 and Philippians 3 and a number of other locations inside of his epistles and right here in Galatians 1 and 2. He tells his story. But in the story that he tells, he wants to make no mistake that it's not about his work, but it's about God's work on his behalf and what he has done. Well, where do we see that? Well, we see it, first of all, in verses 13 and 14, as Paul describes his pre-Christ life. What, what he says is he says, I had this former life in Judaism. You, you all are aware of it. I had a reputation, Paul said. I was the, you know, the all-Israel Jew, the all, you know, like the all-American team. He was the all, he's first team, all-Israel Jew, Paul says. That, that was me. He says, I, I was the one, the, the poster child. Of, of all that was in this Jewish religion. There's nobody did it the way that I did it. And in Philippians chapter 3, he'll say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was without peer. My, my friends would come around and ask me questions about the way that it was supposed to be lived out, this religion of ours, because I was so devout. And, and how devout was he? He was so devout that he wasn't comfortable with anyone who would say anything that sounded different from the traditions of his father's the religion that he had received. Somebody says anything that sounds different, he would set out not just to refute them with an argument, but to kill them with a sword or with a stone. Indeed, Paul had been party to the martyrdom of Stephen in the early church. We read about that in the book of Acts. And Paul was in the process of rounding up Christians in other places in order to arrest them, imprison them, and kill them. That was the Saul of Tarsus. That was the former life that he had. He was violently trying to destroy the church. And and he was not just a religious person in some old religion. He was a religious person in the religion of the Old Testament. Now, he had got it twisted for sure, but he was even dealing out of a book that we like, right? I mean, it's not like he was saying, I was the Hindu of Hindus. I was the Muslim of Muslims. Because I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the Old Testament of Old Testaments. And yet, in the midst of that, something radical happened. In these first few verses, what we see is these I statements. I was this, I was that, I was this, I was that. But by God's grace, something happened to Paul. It goes from the eyes to God. And we see this in verses 15 and 16. It says, but when he who had set me apart, Paul says, before I was born. There, there was a he who intervened in my life, Paul said. And the he who intervened was God himself. And Paul says, though I came to know him on the Damascus road, that was not when God first took notice of me. 
but from the time that I was born, from before the time that I was born. God knew me. God had, had, a, had a plan for me. God was preparing me in all of these moments that even preceded his conversion. Paul said, God was pursuing me. God was preparing me for whatever he had in store for my life. And then at the, the precise moment on the Damascus Road, according to the timeline of God, it says, God called me in his grace. He does not say, He called me in my merit. He called me when I figured it out. He called me when I came to my senses. Paul says none of that. He says he called me in his grace. What does that mean? What that means is that he called Paul when Paul did not deserve it. When Paul was at his worst, God showed up in a mighty and merciful way. That's grace. Friends, that's what happened to us. It's not like we're living our lives and we get a little incrementally better every year until finally we're, we're good enough looking that God says, I guess I'll invite you to the dance. That's not the way it works. The way it works is that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The grace that he extended to Paul is the grace that he extends to you and to me. By God's grace, he, he opened Paul's eyes to reveal to him who Jesus really was. In in that case, it was Jesus on the Damascus Road speaking to Paul directly, and Paul saw him as clear as day and fell before him and received him. For us, it it might be a message that we heard, a a time with a friend who who shared the gospel with us. It, It might be a time that you were singing or some scripture that you were reading where everything became clear. But no, in that moment, it was not because you were smart enough finally to figure it out. It's because God in His grace revealed the Son to you. And in that moment, God not only revealed it to you, but guess what? God also even gave you the faith to embrace it and to believe it. It's a gift of God. Even the faith that we exhibit is a gift of God. The gospel is not just God's idea. The gospel is God's work. If God didn't intervene, we have no hope. But because God intervened, we have the hope of all time that we might embrace and believe the gospel. Now, friends, if this is true for Paul, it's also amazing to think of what else was true for Paul. Jesus didn't let Paul in on you know, some demonstration of his grace and then stick him on a shelf forever. He invited him in by his grace, transformed his heart and soul, and then had him be his vessel to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul was no second-class apostle. He was an apostle of first order. That's what God's grace does for us. It, It makes us not one priest among many, but it makes us a kingdom of priests with opportunity to have access to him and to proclaim his message to the lost. If this is true for Paul, and it is, what are the implications for you and me? Well, it reminds us, if the gospel is God's work, that means that God knows us. He knows the bad, the good, the ugly, knows all of it. And yet, all that he knows does not scare him away from us, but it has him move towards us to make a way for us because he loves us. And the way that he's made for us is through his son who came to gave his life for our sins so that we might be rescued from this present evil age. 
And this morning as we hear that message, we need to be reminded that that is a a message of God coming to us. It's God doing the work for us. It's God making the way for us. It's God giving us the faith to embrace and believe it so that our response in the face of the gospel should be a mighty and a hearty thank you for the work that he has done on our behalf. And this morning as I proclaim this message to you today for for many of us who have trusted in Christ for many years now, or even if it's just in the last few months, that this morning might be an opportunity for you just to go up before the Lord again and just say, Lord, thank you for your grace for revealing your Son to me. But for others of you here, you have, you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ. And as I'm walking through this message, I, I do believe there are some, either in this room or on the other side of that camera, whose hearts are stirring as we speak thinking about what God has done for you, could it be? Well, know that that stirring in your soul is not this message. It's not coming from me to you, but it's the Holy Spirit of God working inside of you to reveal the Son to you, to give you the faith that you might respond and believe right where you are, that you might receive the gospel that is God's idea and the gospel that is God's work. Now, friends, the gospel is God's idea. The gospel is God's work. But there's one additional thing we need to see in these verses that I think is really important for us to remember. And that's this. If it's God's idea and it's God's work, to to who does the glory go? The glory goes to God. God is the one who receives the credit. God is the one who receives the praise. God is the one who is worship. When we gather to worship, we don't gather around and worship us and our commitments. We gather around and we worship Him and His grace and His mercy. That's why the songs have a vertical dimension to them that we sing. Because we're honoring and worshiping Him. The gospel is to God's glory. Now, Paul makes this clear as he talks about his reputation and what was happening. He says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, This is when he's up in Tarsus. He said, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And upon hearing this news that this massive transformation had taken place, people were not going, isn't that cool? Paul is awesome. Paul is so great. That's not what they were doing, right? What were they saying? What do we see that they were saying? They were saying, God, be glorified because of what has happened to Paul. Now, this is an important thing for us to remember, because if we are in Christ, guess what? We have a story too. Paul tells his story often. Acts 22, Acts 26, Philippians 3, Galatians 1 and 2. Paul tells his story often. One of the great tools that God has given us to be able to proclaim the gospel in the age in which we live is the story that he has authored in our lives. So we ought to share that story. We ought to share the story of of our salvation. We ought to share the story of what God has done in our lives and the deliverance that we are experiencing through Him in areas of struggle and difficulty in our lives. We we need to share that. But here really is a question that I think all of us need to ask. When we share the story of what God has done, who is the hero of it? Who is the hero of the story? When we tell our spiritual story, is the hero of our spiritual story us? (laughs) <laughs> then I did this, and then I figured out this, and then I stepped in, and then I said this, then, then, then. If our spiritual story 
If the hero of it is us, guess what? You're telling it wrong. If the hero of your spiritual story is you, you're telling it wrong. Because the ultimate hero of our spiritual story is Jesus Christ. His idea, his work, he gets the glory. And we need to help remind others of that as we tell the story of what God has done in our lives. Paul David Tripp makes this statement that's helpful, I think, in this category. He says, since sin means that you are a bigger danger to you than anything else in your life, and since it is impossible for you to run from you, there is only one hope for you. It is that someone with power, wisdom, and mercy will invade your life, forgive your sins, and progressively deliver you from the hold that sin has had on you. That mercy comes to you in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His mercy is always fresh, uniquely fashioned for the sin struggles of this new day. Friends, Jesus is the hero. And as we share our story with others, which we should share, may we always give the honor and the glory and the praise to God. The gospel is His idea. The gospel is His work. The gospel is to His glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful today as we gather for just the the many ways that you have shown your grace to us. Thank you for the forgiveness that you have extended to us in Christ, the, the way that you have made for us to spend an eternity with you in heaven, but also for us to experience deliverance from the present evil age that we go through right now as you have shown us this new way that you have normalized. We thank you. And I I pray, Father, that we would be a people, as Paul was, who are, are faithful to proclaim the message that came from Christ, a message of a new covenant, a message that we remember and we celebrate and we honor as we take of the communion table together. May we remember the redemption that you have provided through him. Thank you for the faith that you've given us to believe. We profess that now in our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.